All right, I want you guys to do something real quick for me. All right, pull your phone out. Yeah, this is me giving you permission right now. Pull your phone out. <clears throat> when I think back to my college years, um, here's what I don't look back and say I wish I would have done more of. I don't say I wish I would have worked more. I wish I would have done more work study. I wish I would have studied harder. Uh, I graduated with honors, but no big deal. Um, no, I don't look back and I say, oh, I wish I would have made more money or gotten better grades or built a better resume. I actually look back and I say, I wish I would have made more experiences. I wish I would have studied abroad. I wish I would have taken advantage of going to a salt company conference. Those are the things I look back on and I regret. And so I know there are people in this room that you maybe willfully chose, like, I'm not going to go to fall retreat, and I'm not here to hold that against you. But I am here to say there's people that couldn't go to fall retreat because you didn't schedule out far enough in advance. And I feel for you. So what I want to do right now, I want to put two dates on your calendar so you have no excuse when they come up for you to attend, all right? We tracking here? February 18th, 19th, 20th. February 18th through the 20th, the Salt Company Conference down in Des Moines. It will be the time of your life. Imagine fall retreat on steroids, okay? Every salt company in the United States is going to be in Des Moines for this weekend. So think 5,000 college students in a room worshiping Jesus together. That's what it's all about. And it just happens to be the same weekend as state wrestling, so Des Moines is pretty, yeah, pretty on fire. So <clears throat> I'm here to tell you those dates. Number one, so you're free for that weekend. And number two, if you're trying to figure out, like, hey, should our connection group get an Airbnb? Should we find out a situation of somewhere to stay? You should probably start looking because things are going quick, all right? February 18th, 19th, 20th. We got it? Sweet. Here's the second date. The week of March 14th. The week of March 14th is, for many of you, what? Spring break. Yes. Um, and I know that many of you are starting to think through, what am I going to do over spring break? Am I going to go home? Am I going to try and find a beach? What am I going to do? And I want to tell you that Salt Company is going somewhere on fall retreat. It's called Ann Arbor, Michigan. All right? Yes, it's a big deal. We get to go with David Livingston and his team to Ann Arbor. They're going to be planting a church there this fall. And we get to be on campus at the U of M helping to really just till the soil. Uh, you'll get the opportunity to explore the city, spend time with our people, spend time with people that are moving to Michigan, and ultimately just have a, have a great time together. So that is the week of March 14th. I want you to put on your calendars because, let's be honest, I want you to be there with me because I'm going to be there. So you guys got that? Yes, sir. February what? 18th through the 20th. March what? Yes, the week of March 14th. Love it. We're tracking. All right, here we go. We're going to dig in. We're in our parables series, life-changing lessons. And I am convinced, not just because I've been studying it, but I'm convinced that this is going to be one of the most important life-changing lessons that you're going to interact with this semester, okay? And I want us to start our time together by asking a simple question out loud that we actually ask ourselves every day in between our ears. There's this constant question rolling around in our head that maybe it's just helpful to ask out loud. How good is good enough? How good is good enough? We ask this in so many different areas of life, 
whether that be musical performance, athletic performance, passing classes, qualifying for grad school, uh, getting established for a career, or maybe even being suitable for a relationship. So when you think about performance, how good do I need to be in order to see playing time? How good do I need to be to get the solo? How good do I need to be to get that spot? What needs to change with how I train, how I diet? Getting grades, I think there's multiple ways you can take this, and I've honestly been on both sides of it. How bad can I do on this test and still pass? Anybody been there? Yep. Um, but on the flip side, how hard do I need to study, or what does my GPA need to be in order to get into grad school? When it comes to your career, what do I need to do to build my resume? What clubs do I need to join while I'm in college? What resume builder, in terms of an internship, do I need to secure this summer so that I can get my dream job? And when it comes to relationships, what do I need to do to present myself as lovable to those around me? Maybe you're like me in your college years. What can I do to finally get out of the friend zone? Yeah, hey, it's real, y'all. Been there. I'm, I'm here to give you hope, though. There's a way out of the friend zone. I'm that guy. Made my way out of the friend zone. Married a woman that is far beyond what I could ever ask or imagine. Ellie Howell. Everybody, give it up. Ellie Howell. She's the best. Um, or maybe you're in a relationship and you're just you're asking yourself the question, what do I have to do to keep this relationship? Whether that's boyfriend or girlfriend or whether that's just a friendship, you're in a relationship that is breaking and you're asking yourself, what do I need to do to keep this intact? We've all felt the internal wrestle, how good is good enough, but the thing is we haven't just felt it regarding the things of this world. It's not just about getting playing time, passing tests, or getting a job. It's not just about being loved by people. The question is, how good is good enough to God? What is it going to take for me to measure up, for him to look down on me and say, I approve of you? What do I need to do to build my spiritual resume? That's where we're going tonight. How good is good enough? And I just want to say, walking in this room tonight, there are generally two different groups of people. And they've already revealed themselves on the front end of, of worship, right? There's the, the person that walks in the room, you know the lyrics to the songs, you probably walked in with a, a nice study Bible, and you know the answers. Like, even when I'm here asking you how good is good enough, you know the answer. But there are also people who walk in this room several of you here tonight, and no shame, you feel like an outcast. You don't know what you're doing here. Not only do you not know the lyrics, you're kind of like, what do I do with my hands? Like, there's people raising their hands around me. That's kind of weird. Um, you don't own a Bible, and you're not familiar with the teachings of Jesus. And I want you to know that no matter what group you're a part of, first off, you're welcome here. Like, I want you in this room. You should be here. Even if you feel like an outcast, I want you to know that that's not without purpose. You're here with purpose and on purpose. But much more than that, I want you to know that one of these groups of people is not good and right, and the other group of people is bad and wrong. That is very clear as we open up the Bible tonight to Luke 18. If you have a physical Bible, you can turn there with me. Luke 18, we're going to have the verses on the screen. And we're in a parables series. So parables 
uh, we covered very early on, it's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. So Jesus is oftentimes teaching in these stories to show us a greater reality of what's going on in terms of the kingdom of God. He's telling us something that we can understand from an earthly perspective so that we can make the connection between our earthly minds and heavenly thinking. So we're going to dig in. We're in Luke 18, and we're going to start in verse 10. Jesus says, he's telling this parable, he says, Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. We're going to stop right there. Two men going to a temple to pray. But they're two very different people, okay? You probably aren't super aware of Pharisees and tax collectors, so I'm just going to give you a brief overview of who they are. Pharisee, think hyper-religious. The word Pharisee in and of itself means separated, These were men who committed their lives to memorizing the scriptures, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They memorized it by the time they were a teenager. And here's why. They were so committed to living a pure lifestyle that they would memorize the scripture that they could know how to not sin. So they thought. Over 600 laws that they committed to AT. This was the Pharisees. And showing up to the temple for a Pharisee was comfortable. That's just what you do. You're a Pharisee. You're pure. You're committed to the law. So the temple was a pretty comfortable and familiar place for you. Not so for the tax collector. Tax collectors in this day and age were despised. They were the outcasts. They were Jews who worked for the government, and the government was oppressing the Jews. Okay, So not only were they traitors, They turned their backs on their own people. They were oppressors. They were turning their back and oppressing their very own people. And more than that, they were cheaters. They were thieves. They were stealing off the top end of what people were giving to the government. So these were people that were well off but were hated by their own people. And I'm here to tell you that the tax collector in this story showing up to the temple He was not comfortable. He was not familiar. The temple was no place for a tax collector. But nonetheless, he is in the temple, just like many of you have come in this room tonight, and you're in a church, and you're thinking, what the heck am I doing here? So, those are the the characters, and the question is, which of the two of them is good enough for God? Maybe the answer is, is obvious to you, but for the sake of unpacking it, let's just let's take a quick look at the Pharisee. Verse 11. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. And this is the Pharisee. This man stands before God and he says, thank you, God, that I am not immoral like that man over there. I follow all the rules. I fast. I give my money to the church. Or maybe today it's more like, God, thank you that I'm not like those people. Thank you that I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't swear. No, I read my Bible and I go to church on Sunday because I don't party. 
I don't get caught up on social media drama because I'm off social media, matter of fact. I'm too busy serving God and watching The Chosen. That is, that is this, this personality type that says, oh, thank God I'm not like them because I have it figured out. This stands in stark contrast to the tax collector in verse 13. But the tax collector, standing far off, far off, he would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. This tax collector does not have a spiritual resume to bring to God. He does not have anything good to bring before God because guess what? He's a traitor. He's an oppressor. He is a thief. But what he brings to God is a request. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Today, this is the individual that walks in the room and says, I don't belong here. I'm the outcast. I've been sleeping with my boyfriend. I've been addicted to over-the-counter drugs. I've been partying on the weekends, but I'm also here to say, God, help me. So the answer is clear, right? Don't be the sinner. Be the Pharisee. Get your act together. Work harder. Put your spiritual resume before God. And don't be like that dang tax collector who has nothing to offer him, right? That's not actually the message here. In fact, the answer that we get to which one of these two is good enough to get right with God might shock you. We actually need to see who is this parable addressed to. So we're going to go up to the top of the parable, verse 9. He, Jesus, also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Jesus is teaching this parable to the Pharisees. He is talking to the religious elite who found in themselves this desire to promote themselves and be self-righteous, and who looked down on the tax collectors and said, oh, those people are the scum of the earth. Thank God I'm not like them. That's who Jesus was teaching at. And here is the lesson, verse 14. Jesus says, I tell you, this man, talking about the tax collector, went down to his house or left the temple justified. The word justified means declared righteous. I tell you, this tax collector left the temple declared righteous rather than the Pharisee. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Which man is declared righteous? Is it the Pharisee? Is it the guy who follows 613 laws to a T and says, look how good I am? No, it's the tax collector. And is that because Jesus doesn't care about moral performance? No, that's not it, okay? I want you to know this, as a matter of fact, true faith in Jesus follows Jesus. Hear me when I say that. True faith in Jesus follows Jesus. So what he's not doing here is saying, oh, the tax collector is okay with doing whatever he wants, what Jesus is trying to get at is less about our outward performance and is more about the posture of our heart, the state of our heart. That's why he talks about 
pride versus humility. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. He's trying to get to heart posture. And so where did the Pharisee go wrong? Where did the Pharisee go wrong? We have to actually look back at the Pharisee's prayer and make a few observations about how he went wrong. Verses 11 and 12. We're going to read it again. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like the other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Here is the posture of the tax collector. He's proud. The word I is used five times in this prayer. How many times does he address God? But once. And all that he does is he says, God, thank you that I'm not like him. He's not even talking to God. He's talking about himself. He's presenting his resume. He makes no petition. He doesn't ask God for anything because guess what? He doesn't think he needs anything. He has it all together. He relies upon his self-righteousness. He relies upon his good works like fasting and paying the church. And who does he compare himself to? Other people. Here's what he's doing. The Pharisee is looking around and he's saying, oh, at least I'm not as bad as those people. At least I'm not like that tax collector over there. All he does is he compares horizontally to make himself feel better. And it results in a posture that is self-congratulatory. All he can do is boast in himself. The problem with the Pharisee is he thinks righteousness is something he can earn. And though you might not say it like that, I think there's people in this room who would show that in the way you live and show that in the way you talk and in the way you think. You're so busy comparing yourself to other people to make you feel better about yourself. You're so busy talking about your performance, making yourself feel good before God because you think it's up to you. And honestly, you think you've got it pretty figured out because at least you're not like those people that are walking in these doors, that you've seen their Snapchat stories, you've seen their Instagram, you know what they're doing on the weekend, and you feel better because at least you're not like them, right? Jesus is teaching against the Pharisees because we see the heart posture of the tax collector looking much different. Verse 13, but the tax collector standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Where the Pharisee was proud, the tax collector is humble. He's not focused on self-righteousness, he's focused on his lack of righteousness. And guess what he does? He only makes a request. He doesn't present a case before God. He has one thing he says. God, give me mercy. Be merciful to me. Because he doesn't see that he brings anything to God but need. All he sees is need, so all that he brings is a petition. 
He relies not upon his works, but he relies upon the mercy and compassion of God. And who does he compare himself to? He doesn't do this. He doesn't say, God, I wish I was like the Pharisee. He looks vertically, and he sees God as holy and perfect and just, and he understands, I cannot measure up. This isn't about me measuring up compared to other people. This is me looking up and saying, God, you are perfect and holy, and I have missed the mark. Have mercy. He compares himself to God, and this leaves him in a posture of sorrow over sin. This guy is standing at a distance, and though it was common of that day for people to look up in prayer, this man cannot even get himself to look up. He doesn't even feel worthy to lift his eyes to heaven when he's talking to God. He is downcast. He is distraught. He is sitting there pounding his chest. God, fix this heart in me. Give me mercy. I'm desperate. This man feels brokenness. Have you ever felt broken? I know I have. And though brokenness is a sign that something is wrong, we've all felt brokenness. <laughs> In some way, shape, or form, whether it's your sin or somebody else's, we all feel brokenness because we live in a broken world. But just because you feel brokenness does not mean that something is inherently wrong with you, okay? To feel brokenness over your sin is actually a sign that something is right in you. When you begin to actually feel a need for mercy and you begin to feel convicted that you have not measured up to the, the standard that God has set before you, that is a brokenness that we are actually designed to feel. And we are designed to feel that in such a way that we cry out to our creator and we say, God, give me mercy. Salt Company, I want you to know this God we follow, he doesn't grade on a curve, Okay? I've been in physics at Iowa State University. I know what a curve is like. You get that 60% and you're like, that's an easy A minus. That was so cake. But I think the problem is many of us in this room, we think that God is grading us on a curve. We think, okay, so long, so long as I perform middle of class, so long as I look out compared to everybody else that's doing this thing called life, and so long as I'm somewhere in the middle, that's going to give me a C, and that's a passing grade, and I'm going to get into heaven. That's not how God works. God has a standard, and he says, here's the deal. You need to meet it. You need to measure up, right? Be perfect. God would say, be holy as I'm holy. And one, all, one other thing you need to know is your Facebook profile picture performance is not tricking Jesus. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? Stumble across someone, add them on Facebook, their Facebook profile picture, like, when did they get into modeling, right? Because you've seen, you've seen them on a Saturday morning at Hy-Vee on First Ave, and you're like, that ain't you, right? <laughs> Jesus, sees, Jesus sees you at your worst, and you're not tricking him by putting on a show and putting on a performance, So how do we get right with God? It's, it's one of two ways, all right? You either live the perfect life and you fulfill the command to be holy as I'm holy, or 
You're like the tax collector. You see yourself as a sinner in need of mercy. It's actually really interesting. This was probably one of my favorite parts of studying this text. In verse 13, when the tax collector says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, the word merciful in its original language is halaskomai. Yeah, you guys ready to learn another language? Halaskomai, you can say it. Halaskomai. This word is only used two times in the entire Bible. In this text, and then in Hebrews 2.17. And in Hebrews 2.17, we see Jesus fulfilling this thing called atonement. Another way that you can translate this word merciful is propitiation. It's a churchy word, but it's, it's a two-part act that involves this, appeasing the wrath of God. And the wrath of God is necessary for God to be loving. For him to say, I am going to punish injustice on this earth. The wrath of God must be satisfied. And so here's the deal. Jesus took the wrath for you. In his death on the cross, the wrath of God is perfectly, completely, fully poured out on the perfect son of God. But the second part of propitiation is this. It's not just appeasing the wrath of God. It's being reconciled to him. And in Jesus' resurrection, three days later, in his resurrection, he's showing, not only did I fulfill the wrath of God, I rose again so that you can have a relationship with him. I'm declaring victory over sin. I'm declaring victory over death itself. And so the question is, are you going to receive this propitiation? Are you going to receive this mercy? In Matthew 9, shortly after healing a paralyzed man, Jesus calls a disciple by the name of Matthew. Anybody know what Matthew's uh, occupation was? A tax collector, okay? The Pharisees looked on. They did not like this. This is this, the same two people groups, a tax collector and a group of Pharisees. And the Pharisees are trying to say to Jesus, why are you hanging out with those people? Why are you doing that? And Jesus, when he hears them talking, says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. He's telling the disciples, go figure this out. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. He's saying, I don't want your religious performance. I don't want you to try and measure up anymore. I want you to get on your knees to see yourself as weak and needy and desperate and to see that you need a savior. That's what Jesus is telling the Pharisees. And what Jesus says to the tax collectors, what he says to Matthew is, I've seen you at your worst. I knew you were a tax collector when I called you. And you can't outrun the grace of God. That's good news. He sees you at your worst and he says, yeah, I'm calling you. I know you need mercy and I'm here to give it. So what does it take to get right with God as we look at Luke 18, 9 through 14? You could say getting right with God is a gift for the sinner, not a reward for the self-righteous. Getting right with God is a gift for the sinner, not a reward for the self-righteous. Or you can simplify it 
getting right with God is righteousness, okay? Righteousness is a gift you receive, not a reward you earn. Righteousness is a gift you receive, not a reward you earn. And if this parable is not just a good story, but it's actually meant to change the way we live our lives, we need to do something with this text. We can't just read it and say, oh, that's a cute story. Jesus is so kind. Yes, I need mercy. Move on with my day. I've been there before, right? You read your Bible, you're like, oh, that's neat. Thump. Go on with the rest of your day. Like, you guys, this is the word of God. It's actually here to cut and pierce to your soul and to do surgery on you and to cut out the things that are killing you, to take the cancerous tumor out of your soul and to say, I'm here to make you new. And so, if righteousness is a gift we receive, not a reward we earn, what does that mean about us? What do we do? Four things. doesn't mean you have to do all of them. Okay? Number one, see. See yourself rightly. You need to begin to actually see yourself rightly, and that also means you need to see God rightly. You need to see him for who he truly is, which is holy and perfect and just. And also, you need to see him as a father, okay? He is not a far-off, distant authoritarian. He is a good father who knows how to draw near to his children. And he's not here to have you clean up your act to come to him. What he wants to actually do is bring you in and clean you up. That's who God is as a father. Number two, stop. Stop comparing yourself to other people. Comparison kills on either way, whether you're saying, I wish I was like them, or thank God I'm not like them, you were never meant to compare yourself horizontally. Who has God called you to be? Are you living up to who he has called you to be? If not, look up. Compare yourself vertically. Stop doing this horizontal game. And from that place, seek Plead with God for mercy. Seek his face. Be willing to be like David in Psalm 139, who towards the tail end of the passage says, God, show me any grievous way in my heart. Show me any sin that exists in here because I need to get it out. Be willing to seek God's face and be willing to let him search your heart to get rid of this sin that is killing you. And lastly, share, okay? Share, share the gospel. And you've probably heard this before, like, go tell other people about the good news of Jesus. And I am here to tell you, go do that. Like, we are commanded, this is too good of news not to share. I confess, I am quicker to share an ESPN notification on my phone many times than I am the good news of Christ. Like, Russell Wilson broke his middle finger? Oh my gosh, I should go tell everybody. No. Like, you guys, Jesus came to seek and save sinners. He came to give mercy to a sinner like me. So yes, share the gospel. Share the good news of Jesus. But it's so much more than that. Because we actually get to share the gospel with other people as we begin to confess our sins. 
if you are presenting yourself to other people as a finished product, you are robbing them of the gospel. You are the Pharisee. You have no need for God because you have it figured out. I'm in a class right now um, called Evangelism and Discipleship. There's this interesting story about um, a boss and his coworker. And this coworker attends church one Sunday, comes to know Jesus, and he comes back to work and he tells his boss, um, hey, I think I'm going to need time off because I just accepted Jesus and I need to figure out what changes I need to make in my life. And the boss says this, no way, I've been praying for you all this time. And the worker says, wait a second, you're a Christian? And the boss sheepishly says, yeah, I'm a Christian, I've been praying for you. And the coworker says, you're part of the reason I never wanted Jesus. Because I looked at your life and I saw that you could be good without him. Man, that hits. So you presenting yourself as a finished product is actually showing people that you can get by just fine without Jesus, which is not true. You need to grow in your confession and repentance around other people. And I'm here to tell you, in our connection groups, these are safe environments where you can begin to confess sin and people are not going to shame you. They are going to refresh you in the gospel. They're going to say, thank you for letting me know. And also, Jesus sees you in your sin, and he already died, and he already rose again, and he's already given you victory. They're there to remind you of the gospel. So as we live this out, Salt Company, think of it this way. We are recipients of mercy. That's who we are as Salt Company. We are recipients of mercy. It's not about putting on a show. It's not about having it all together. But it's about being a real, authentic, come-as-you-are community that falls in love with the mercy of Christ. That God would look at us and he would not give us what we deserve, which is death and judgment and wrath, but that he would withhold that and instead would give us blessing. He would give us him, his very self. He would give us peace and joy and belonging and purpose and love. That is who God is. And so with our righteousness found in Jesus, with this being a gift we receive and not a reward we earn, we don't have to pretend we have it all together. That's what I want for this community. Let's stop acting like we have it all together because no one that's ever walked this earth actually thinks we have it all together, right? Anybody that's walked any amount of life would look at you and they're not tricked thinking that you have the perfect life. But we do have the perfect God. We have the perfect God who has walked through the valley of the shadow of death who has taken it upon himself and in his resurrection is inviting us into this idea of being recipients of mercy. That's who we are. Amen? Let's pray to that end. Father, thank you for, thank you for your word. Thank you for your word in Luke 18, 9 through 14. Um, I see in myself far more than I would like to admit this Pharisee mindset that just looks out, looks at other people and from a place of 
pride and from a place of insecurity, I'm quick to, to judge other people, to see where they don't measure up and where I seem to think I do. But God, as I sit in this text and I look at the tax collector, I see me most clearly. I see, I see a guy who is not deserving of anything but wrath. But Jesus, thank you that you have seen me at my worst. You see me in my rebellion. And Jesus, you died and rose again so that I would not be identified by my sin, but that I would be identified by your victory. And so help us, help us as Salt Company, help our staff, help our students to be recipients of mercy, to take the mask off, to stop pretending that we have it all figured out, to think we're better than other people, but to also understand that we are not, we're not better, but we are better off because we have you, Jesus. Thank you for the mercy that you have given us. Help us to worship you from the overflow of our hearts as we have been recipients of mercy. Help us to worship you from that place. We pray in your name. Amen.